We are continuing our large group series called Why Church tonight. And that in this series, we're asking and trying to answer questions that you might have about the church. Why does it exist? Why should I be a part of it? Why should I attend or join a local church? Um, and last week, uh, we saw that the Bible gives the response to that question, why church, with the answer, because Jesus. We saw that the church, ultimately, it's all about him. It's all about Jesus. And it exists so that you and I might have a relationship uh, with Jesus and might grow in our relationship with him. Well, tonight, our topic is truth. And we're going to be looking at this passage from 1 Timothy 3, uh, verses 14 through 16, and with particular focus on verse 15. And this passage shows us that the church exists for the sake of the truth. So why church? Tonight we're going to see because truth. And just a word of context before we look at this passage together uh, it was written a long time ago in the first century AD by the Apostle Paul to his protege, Timothy, who he calls his, his true child in the faith. And the reason he wrote to Timothy was to advise him on both church conduct and church doctrine, or in other words, how the church should behave and what the church should believe. And though we don't know all the specific circumstances surrounding this letter, we do know, especially from the first chapter of the letter, that false teachers and false teachings have infiltrated the church. And tonight's passage, 1 Timothy 3, again, 14 through 16, it's smack dab in the middle of this letter, and it really does serve as the purpose statement of the book. It's the key passage that unlocks the message of the entire letter. So let's uh, give our attention to the reading of God's word tonight. I'll read it for us. Feel free to follow along in the PDF, or if you have a Bible, uh, you can follow along with me. So again, this is 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we ask that you would open your word to us tonight, and also that you would open our hearts and minds to your word. And we ask you this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, a couple of months before COVID hit and everything completely shut down, way back in December of 2019, Davidson College released the sleek new ad campaign on national TV. Many of you I'm sure are familiar with it. In fact, some of you may have first heard of Davidson because of it. 
And the 42 second commercial began with these thought provoking words. Truth is an elusive concept these days. And now the ad you know, goes on to explain all the ways that you can find truth at Davidson. In particular, they say you can find truth through deep sincerity, intellectual bravery, unquestioned integrity, and fundamental decency. But what I really want to focus on for tonight uh, are those seven little words at the start of the ad that convey such a huge idea. Truth is an elusive concept these days. Do you ever feel that way? I know I do, especially when there's big breaking news, especially news that's controversial, and I go and flip between CNN and Fox. And though the talking heads are reporting on the exact same event, they draw vastly different conclusions. I also feel that truth is elusive these days when I hear uh, some friends of mine that are pastors and they tell me that members of their Bible-believing churches have bought into hook, line, and sinker, unsubstantiated, and even disproven, dis debunked conspiracy theories. Truth feels like an elusive concept these days. How about you? When do you feel this? Maybe it's when you're working on a really difficult econ problem set and try as you may, you just can't arrive at the right answer. Or maybe you're writing a research paper and all the secondary sources that you're reading, none of them agree. Or maybe the data from your lab experiment didn't come out the way that you had expected or the way that you had hoped. Or maybe you feel that truth is elusive, not just in the classroom or in the lab. Maybe you feel that way in relationships. Maybe you've been betrayed by someone you were convinced was a true friend. And now you're struggling to trust others. And you're also struggling to trust your own ability to judge character. Or maybe you feel like truth is elusive when it comes to your relationship with God. Because you hear certain Christians or pastors or professors say one thing about the Bible, but then you hear other Christians or other pastors and prof professors argue the exact opposite. And so you're left wondering, what should I believe? So clearly truth can feel elusive in one way or another for all of us. You know, it's a universal human experience. So much so that in 2006, Merriam-Webster's dictionary labeled truthiness as the word of the year, this word made up by Stephen Colbert, truthiness. And 12 years later in 2018, the Oxford Dictionary from across the pond, they named post-truth to be the word of the year. So, so why is this happening? Why is the world this way? Why is truth so elusive? And it would be easy to blame, you know, postmodernism and say, you know, we wouldn't be in this predicament if it weren't for guys like Kant or Nietzsche 
or Foucault or Derrida, but that really doesn't get to the heart of the issue. The Bible says that we were made by truth and for truth. In other words, we were made by the true God, hardwired to know and to love and to speak the truth. And yet, ever since the fall, when Adam and Eve trusted the serpent's lie instead of God's word, sin has made it difficult or even impossible for human beings to recognize or agree on what is true. And so this makes what the Bible says here in 1 Timothy 3, especially in verse 15, all the more shocking. The church, which is the household of the living God, again, not a, not a place primarily, not a service, not a, not, not a time on Sunday, like we talked about last week, but, but a people, the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Well, all I want to do tonight is really dig into this argument, this statement. The church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. So we're just going to ask three questions. First, what does that mean? Second, what does that look like? And third, why does it matter? So first, what does it mean for the church to be a pillar and buttress of the truth? Thanks, I think, in part to Chip and Joanna Gaines and their obsession with all things open concept. We don't really come across too many pillars and buttresses these days. But for Paul and Timothy and the people that they served and ministered to, the people that Paul's writing to, they were an everyday part of life. And so Paul grabs this image from first century life, first century architecture to serve as a metaphor just as pillars and buttresses support and uphold synagogues, temples, you know, government houses and palaces, or for us, chambers or the library, just as pillars and buttresses support, so support and uphold all these buildings, the church supports and upholds the truth. Or as Australian pastor and author Philip Jensen puts it, the business of church is the truth of God's word. And from our passage, and especially from, from verse 16, the context of verse 16, uh, we see that the truth Paul has in mind is the good news about Jesus. He gives us this beautiful Jesus creed in verse 16 he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So the church upholds and supports the truth that is the good news about Jesus. Now, before we move on, I just want to say that, or I just want to point out and have us consider what Paul is not saying. So Paul is not saying that the church is the fountain of truth or the pinnacle, the zenith of truth. In other words, the church doesn't create truth or have the final word on truth. It's not the ultimate authority on truth. Those responsibilities belong to God. But rather, the church simply supports and upholds the truth of God's word, again, which is the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. So that's what it means, but what does it look like for the church to be a, a pillar and buttress of the truth? And I think, again, what we see in tonight's passage is that it looks like proclaiming the gospel in both word and deed. So first, let's consider word proclamation. What does that look like? You know, as we look again at verse 16, Paul actually demonstrates this for us. He says, great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. And then again, it goes on to, he goes on to recite this, this very beautiful poetic creedal statement that is a, a, a confession of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, when you and I hear Paul talk about this mystery of godliness, you know, we might think that what he's, what he's intending to communicate is some sort of how-to manual, some sort of instructions for how to be godly. But that's not what we get. That's not what he gives us, is it? You know, he says, this is the mystery of godliness. He doesn't give us a how-to manual to be godly. He gives us a creed. He gives us the gospel. The gospel is the mystery of godliness. And this, this is what makes Christianity different from all other religions. You know, the message of Christianity, the, the word that the church proclaims, it is not, here's how you clean up your life, right? It's not, here's how you shape up your act. No. It's, here's what God in Christ has done for you. Do you believe it? In every other religion, in every other worldview, godliness is something that you attain, that you achieve, that you earn. But in Christianity, godliness is something that God freely gives you, and you receive through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. As we said last week, the church is all about Jesus. And so um, this is the message that the church must cling to and proclaim if she is to be faithful to her calling as the pillar and buttress of the truth. So if you're, if you're looking for a local church to attend, uh, churches that proclaim the truth about Jesus, those are the churches worth considering those are the churches worth attending, worth joining. But, but not only must the church proclaim the gospel in word, she also has to live out and proclaim the gospel in deed. So what, what do we mean by deed proclamation? You know, notice the reason why Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. I mean, he tells us explicitly in verse 15, he says that he is writing so that Timothy may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Behavior matters. Conduct matters. It either supports or undermines the mission and witness of the church. And as Paul says in Ephesians 4, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Or as another apostle, the apostle John, one of Jesus's disciples, says in one of his letters, if we say we have fellowship with him 
while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And so what's true for the church as a whole is especially true for the church's leaders. And so Paul will also say to Titus, another one of his protégés, that elders, overseers, leaders in the church, they've got to be above reproach. Their behavior, their conduct matters. What we as Christians, what we as members of the church do with our bodies, it matters. What we do with money matters. What we do with our power and influence, whether we steward it well and, and whether we freely give it or whether we hoard it or abuse it, it matters. Because again, in the end, our conduct, it either reflects the truth or it tarnishes it. This is why you know, church scandals, especially among church leaders are so, so damaging. And it's why Jesus's most severe, his most sobering warnings are directed toward the teachers and leaders of his church. Because for the church to be a pillar and buttress of the truth, it needs to proclaim the gospel both in word and in deed. And I think, you know, it's interesting. Um, this really came home for me in a, in a powerful way um, when I was in seminary. And I remember uh, one of my professors, an Old Testament professor, uh, a really well-respected uh, member of the faculty. Uh, He's kind of a rising star at, at Covenant and um, you know, publishing books and asking to speak at various conferences and events. Uh, my professor started a class of the devotion where he said uh, that he finds himself praying uh, somewhat regularly this prayer. He, he, he would pray, Lord, kill me before I am unfaithful to my wife or I abandoned or I abandon your truth. See, my professor knew that there are some things worse than dying. He knew that as a Christian, especially as a leader in the church, that, that his commitment to God's truth, both in word and in deed, was vitally important. It was important to his spiritual well-being and the spiritual well-being of those around him, and especially to us, the students that were learning from him. He believed what Paul told Timothy earlier in this letter in, in 1 Timothy 1, verse 19. He believed that by rejecting the truth, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And so this professor of mine, he would pray in essence, Lord, spare me from that fate at all costs. Now, he was not saying, look, if if you have an affair or if you walk away from the faith, then all hope is lost. He, he, he was not saying that. He had too high a view of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness uh, for sinners. He knew that while a human being has, has breath in their lungs, that, that there is still time to repent, to turn from sin and turn to Jesus. 
all he was acknowledging was this, look, I am capable of these things. So Lord, would you please spare me by any means necessary? People both inside and outside the church need to hear and especially to see the truth of the gospel. And for that to happen, the church has to proclaim in word and in deed the good news of Jesus Christ. I think it's interesting that um, God doesn't just give the church uh, his word that we can hear, that is in the scriptures, but he also gives us the word that we can see and touch and handle and grasp in the sacraments of communion and of baptism. It's almost as if he knows that we need to both see and hear the truth of the gospel. And this brings us to our last point. Why is it important for the church to be a pillar and buttress of the truth? And I'll, I'll be real brief on this last point. It's important because although there is truth about God and the world and about yourselves that you can learn apart from the church and apart from God's word, things like, you know, you, you, can, you can learn from creation uh, that God is majestic, that he has splendor, uh, that he, he has order, uh, and that his world has order. Uh, you can learn truth as in, you know, you can study and observe the, the size of atoms, the density of elements. You know, you can observe and measure the distance from the earth to the moon. So, so clearly there's truth, you know, outside of and apart from the church and God's word. But what you can't learn is the truth about God's salvation. That only comes to us through his word. In other words, you can't find out about your sinfulness and your deep need for forgiveness just in creation. You, you can't look at the stars and the, and the moon. Um, you can't look at the trees and the mountains and know that God has been planning and working and accomplishing his rescue plan throughout real time and space. And, and you can't learn about and know about the mystery of godliness, which is Jesus, who was manifested in the flesh, you know, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. For that, you need the church. Because if there is no church to support and uphold the truth of the gospel, in other words, if the church were to vanish, if the church were to crumble and fall, then the truth would crumble and fall with it. But the good news of the gospel is that God is committed to his church and Jesus is ever faithful to his bride. And he has promised that come hell or high water, his church will forever be on the earth. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. 
And so as we close, I just want to return again to our initial question. Do you feel like truth is an elusive concept these days? Like competing ideologies are fighting it out in the public sphere. Like long revered and respected institutions can no longer be trusted. Like everything is relative and answers to life's big questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What's the purpose of life? What comes next? That, that those answers are completely up for grabs. Do you feel that way? If you do, and if you really want to find truth at Davidson, then let me just make one very practical suggestion. Instead of asking yourself, what should I believe? Ask, who should I trust? Not because all truth is relative, but because every human being is relational, including yourself. So go ahead and ask, who should I trust? My professor, my friends, my parents, my coach, my campus minister, my intern, who should I trust? And the witness of the church is that there is no one more trustworthy than Jesus. He is the truth. He has prayed to his father that we would be sanctified in the truth. And he has given the church the spirit of truth. And yes, he's commissioned the church with this mission of supporting and upholding the truth. If Jesus really did die for our sins and rise again from the dead so that we might have eternal life, then you can trust him with life's biggest questions. And you can join the church, not because the church has a corner on the truth, but because she has Jesus as her cornerstone. And so will you support the truth and be supported by the truth? If so, then I'd invite you to get out of the grandstands and to come on the field and to join the church. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you uh, for your word written so long ago, but given uh, for us and for uh, every generation uh, that we might know you uh, and know your salvation through your son, Jesus. I pray that you would bury your word deep in our hearts and minds, that you would apply it uh, to our lives, and that you would transform us, that you would make us more and more into the image and likeness of your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.